So I'm glad everybody survived last weekend. I'm assuming everybody survived. Those of you who are here obviously survived. How was it? Did you build snowmen? Uh, what's the... Is it, did I do it right? All right. Did anybody build a snowman? Did you go sledding? No. Thank you to uh, Lacey and John and Benjamin who put together at the last minute the service for last week. Um, it looks like what we had like two and a half views on. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I actually have no idea how many people watched it, but it was super well done. Very, very grateful for it. And it was uh, it was a good worship, even if we had to be at home. And those of you who are at home anyway, hopefully it wasn't too much different than what you normally experience. So we, uh, we finished up John 18 last week, so now we're in John 19. And we're going to read verses 1 through 16, or 16a, I should say. Uh, the first part's going to be up on the screen, so I'm going to invite you to stand. We'll read together John uh, 19, verses 1 through whenever we stop reading, and then I'll finish from there on. This is God's word to us. Again, this morning. Here it comes. (laughs) It looks like it's faded. Did we just lose it? We may have. Oh, there we go. There we go. Ignore the little clock up there. What's happening? We have 30 seconds to, to read this, I'm guessing. Oh, is it seriously? I've never noticed that. All right. John 19, God's word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! 
Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Fathers, we listen to this account, the historic reality of what your son walked through. We ask for ears to hear and for a heart to receive and for Jesus to be lifted high and for you to be our teacher and our guide as we, we process these words, as we sit under these words and as these words soak into us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated if you would like. <clears throat> Most of the rulers, the kingdoms of the world, I don't think this is an overstatement. You can challenge this if you want. I think most rulers and kingdoms are anxiously unstable. Is that a fair assessment? Usually uh, there's fighting for control, really, often manipulating or manipulated playing the political game or the military game, and then our own personal worlds and work. We're not all that dissimilar. Uh, what do I need to stay ahead? What do I need to get ahead? What do I need to keep from getting behind? Anxious, insecurity, instability. What do we see in this passage? Um, what are the forces that are at play here? Like this is a dynamic passage. There's no, we just skimmed the surface, what we're going to do today. What are some things that we get to see, though, with the forces that are at play? You have the Jewish religious leaders, these officers, the rulers. They, there is an anxious, passionate attempt to take control of the situation. We see that. They're trying to control the situation, to stabilize the unstable. Things are very unstable for them. And then you look at Pilate, and it's really much the same. Even talks here about his fear. He's anxiously unstable like every Roman authority ever was because they are always under the pressure of being deposed or decapitated, right? That's just the reality that they lived in. So are we really all that different as a nation, as communities, as individuals? Anxiously unstable looking for calm and stability. I know I'm looking for that. This is what Jesus offers. Jesus always seems to have this calmness, this steadiness, this purpose, purposefulness, this patience about him, and it continues, and it's even exalted, I think, to even, even to a higher degree as he walks into these final hours, this road to the cross. But the stability that he brings does not come in a way that we imagine. This is a strange stability. Nor does it come by escaping the world's craziness. It doesn't come by an escape of the craziness. But here's kind of the big idea that we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. Jesus' good rule is patiently worked out in the anxious instability of the world. His good rule and I'm proposing it's a good rule, is worked out patiently in the anxious insecurity that the world baptizes us in. 
All right, uh, how does he do this, okay? There's uh, m- multiple ways that you could probably look at this passage, kind of tear it apart, but I want to look at his good rule, patiently working out this anxious, in this anxious instability in these ways. It's through suffering, it's through trusting, it's through disarm. it's not going to be up there, sorry, through disarming, and then next week we'll look at another piece of it, which is fulfilling. But today, look at these things, suffering, trusting and disarming. So the, the suffering part, this one's pretty obvious from the story itself as we, as we read it, but it's counterintuitive. Suffering this way is an upside, day, is upside, day, upside way of ruling. It's not normal. It, his suffering here is one of both humiliation and suffering of injustice. Both of these things are happening with him. In some, in some ways, Pilate is trying to mock Jesus. Well, I mean, he is mocking Jesus, but he's trying to mock Jesus in order to really mock who? The, the people that are bringing him, like the accusers. He's really mocking Jesus to mock them. He's trying to embarrass and humiliate them and make them give up on this attempt to have Jesus killed by embarrassing and humiliating Jesus. That's, that's his approach. How does, how does this happen? Well, they flog Jesus. They, the soldiers take him, they dress him up, right? They put this crown of thorns on him. They put him with a, a purple robe on him, the, the sign of a king, right? He doesn't believe he's a king. This is a, this is a mockery. Hail, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. It's a complete mockery. They beat him. What does Jesus do as this is all taking place? He suffers it. He doesn't fight. He doesn't, he doesn't defend. He doesn't doesn't even call out for help. And not any of those things are wrong to do when you're in a bad situation. He just doesn't do it in this situation. He suffers the humiliation from the people. Clearly, he does that. But somehow, it seems like he's also suffering it on behalf of the people. Now, we'll look at that a little bit more next week. But we know it because he is the king of the Jews. A king represents his people. He's suffering this on behalf of his people. And then likewise, he's suffering this injustice. So as we've we've listened to John's account, Jesus is unequivocally described by John as innocent, right? There's, There's no question in John's account whether Jesus is innocent. But in addition, in this trial, Pilate is even being convinced of his innocence, Okay, the, the unrighteous Pilate is being convinced of his innocence. He's even growing to be concerned that he's not just innocent of the charges, he's something even more than innocent. He's not really sure what this is, but Pilate is being moved towards seeing Jesus as something more than even innocent. Jesus here makes no defense. He suffers the injustice, and he takes it along with the humiliation. This is the way he rules Okay, there's a depiction on how Jesus rules here, he, how he exercises his kingship. He suffers humiliation and injustice from his people, and he takes it on behalf of his people. This is some description of how Jesus rules. Um, if we want to learn more about this aspect of Jesus and his rule, how do we do that? Like, How do we maybe do that even in our context right now? I want to throw out something. I think one way is that we listen to people who have suffered humiliation and injustice. When we listen to and we come alongside those who have suffered humiliation and injustice, we get to taste what Jesus tasted. 
And when we taste what Jesus tasted, we're actually starting to taste how Jesus rules. We have a population speaking specifically to us here in Greeley. We have a population that knows what it looks like to have suffered injustice, right? To be dehumanized. What does it look like for us as a community of Jesus? Not only to go and serve in those places, right? That's a big deal. But to go and learn. How, how might we, in our moving towards those who are suffering in this way, actually encounter the rule of Jesus? Something for us to think through. But then also, how might this then shape us as a people under his rule? What then might we look like if this is who our king is and this is how he rules? What does that look like for us, for how we treat each other and how we rule? So there's a, there's a quote. I read this through some other thing, but it's a quote from Eugene Peterson. And he's talking about some of these ideas. And he, and he says this, Why are Christians of all people embarrassed by tears, uneasy in the presence of sorrow? unpracticed in the language of lament. Of all people, why are we, he says. It certainly is not a biblical heritage, for virtually all our ancestors in the faith were thoroughly acquainted with grief. And our Savior was, as everyone knows, a man of sorrows. Then he goes on, he says, at least one reason why people are uncomfortable with tears and the sight of suffering is that it is a blasphemous assault on their precariously maintained American spirituality of the pursuit of happiness. Oh, okay. They want to avoid evidence that things are not right with the world as it is, without Jesus, without love, without faith, without sacrifice. It is a lot easier to keep the American faith if they don't have to look into the face of suffering, if they don't have to listen to our laments, if they don't have to deal with our tears. That's one to sink in for a while. If y'all want that quote, email me, and I'm happy to send it. Suffering. Then this other part. After Pilate hears the accusations that Jesus made himself to be the son of God, he is even more afraid. He, he pulls Jesus back into his headquarters for a private conversation. He's already had one. He wants another private conversation. Where are you from? Jesus gives no response. Pilate anxiously, angrily says, I, you're not going to speak to me? I'm the one that can let you go or kill you. Do you not understand this? Jesus says, you'd have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. Okay, what do we do with that? There's two levels. Two levels of the authority from above that I think is being alluded to here. The first, Pilate is quite aware of. Pilate would have been appointed to his position. That's an appointed position that Pilate was, um, was exercising. So he would have no authority if it were not for the one above him, Tiberius Caesar at that time. Tiberius Caesar was the ruler from, I don't know, like 14 AD to 30-something, 37 AD. Okay, So during this time, Tiberius Caesar, who was the stepson of Augustus Caesar, 
He had been appointed to the position, right? Pilate gets this authority from above. That's even what scares the living daylights out of him. And he ends up doing the very thing that he knows he shouldn't do. Why? Because of the authority that's above him. Um, why do I say that? Well, one, Pilate repeatedly said, verse, back in verse 18, he says, I find no guilt in him. Then 19, verse 4, see, I'm bringing him back to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. And then in verse 6, take him yourself. You go crucify him. I find no guilt in him. He realizes that Jesus is not guilty. There's no question in his mind. Then in verse 12, from then on, after all this, Pilate actually sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself to be king opposes Caesar. This is, a, this is what finally kind of tilted the scales for Pilate. It's, an, it's a not-so-veiled threat by the accusers that Jesus, that, that, uh, to make sure that Caesar, that Pilate knows that they know how to get in touch with Caesar, right? Pilate knew if you don't take this seriously, Caesar's going to come down on you. Somebody is threatening the throne. Come on, man. Listen to what we're saying. They're playing the political game. So when Jesus says, you don't have authority on your own, nor would you have authority over me if it were not given from above, Pilate gets this level. You might call it the first level or the second level, however you want to think about it. And he is afraid of that authority. He's petrified of that authority of Caesar. He doesn't trust that authority, or at least he doesn't trust for that authority to be patient and good. He's scared of living, living daylights are scared out of him, right? That's one level. I, I think Jesus is probably referring to a higher level. That's my guess, more than my guess. He, he uses this term from above, and John has actually used that term in other parts of his book to refer to God, the one who is above. Pilate's rule comes to him from the above all authority, Jesus says. As much as he may or may not be using his authority well, he may or may not be using his, his position and his, and his power and his place, he still has someone higher than him and higher than Caesar that has given him this authority. Jesus knows that above all authority is actively working in the mix of all the anxiously unstable, dysfunctional power structures and struggles that are playing out in front of him. Jesus knows that. That ultimate authority is his Father, to whom he is eternally tied. And Jesus is referring to this authority Jesus patiently, calmly, what does this mean? He patiently and calmly rules because he trusts his father is the above all authority and that this father is working good and has a good purpose in this horror show. Then Jesus' rule is what could be called disarming. So... This is an interesting one, so bear with me as we think through this. Where are we seeing this disarming? Well, we see it with his accusers and then his sentencer. Um, he disarms his accusers, meaning what? Because the accusers look like they're, they're pretty armed, looks like they're pretty much in power, which is, which is kind of true, but Jesus exposes them, doesn't he? 
aren't they actually exposed? As we read the narrative, isn't the narrative showing that they are exposed? Do you feel that way? Or you're like, I don't really know about that. I'm looking. Okay, maybe, all right. You don't have to. Just follow with me. See. Um, They're supposed to be showing allegiance to God. That's what they're, that's their job. Um, They're supposed to be caring for the weak. They're supposed to be expressing love and grace and patience. They're the religious leaders. They're supposed to be the representatives of Yahweh who who are supposed to be representing God in this kind of a character. And instead, what do we see from them? They are full of venomous hate, manipulation, threatening, inciting violence, playing the political game. That's what they're doing. In promoting their allegiance to God, they deny God as their king. They carry the flag and God we trust. And they're opposing the God they say they trust. Literally, they do this. Literally, they say, we have no king but Caesar. They say it. It comes out of their mouth. And then more unknowingly for them, they deny God as king by denying the king God had sent, right? They don't get that part, but we do as we read the text. Jesus doesn't have to do anything but be present and be quiet and be himself. They dig their own grave. They dig their own hole. Jesus is about to be stripped naked, but in suffering and in trusting, he stands in contrast to his accusers, stripping them naked. Showing the world who they really are and really showing who humanity really is. Any, any kind of spiritual authority that they thought that they had, that they thought they were yielding, has been exposed as empty. They are disarmed. They're actually disarmed. It's like me telling you to go love your wife while you're watching me beat my wife. Well, what the heck? You have no authority to speak into my life, Right? How many of y'all have seen the movie A Few Good Men? Oh, no. Okay. I know. I know. Okay, yes. Those of you who are over 30 have probably seen A Few Good Men. So there's a movie to go watch. I'm not going to tell the whole story. This is going to fall really flat then. So the, the two of the main characters are um, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. Tom Cruise is this young lawyer. Jack Nicholson is a, is a colonel, and the stuff has gone on. A soldier has died. They're in a courtroom. Jack Nicholson's on the stand. Tom Cruise is, is trying to get him to tell the truth about the story. And, oh, man, this is too bad. Y'all haven't seen this. So there comes, there comes a point, um, and, and Tom Cruise is just yelling at Jack Nicholson. And he says, did you not order red, the code red? Did you order code red? He says, I want to know the truth. And Jack Nicholson, this is famous. You've got to have seen this, right? You can't handle the truth. Have you heard that one? Okay, you've at least heard that. Go watch the movie now. Go watch the movie. And from that point on, Jack Nicholson, he, um, he just incriminates himself. He dismantles himself. He disarms himself. He's left standing, sitting, naked, and exposed. This is how Paul describes later in Colossians chapter 2. He, he describes it this way. He says, God disarmed the rulers in authority, and they put, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. How like this? Jesus' rule undressed, it disarmed the strong and the powerful. 
the inflictors of humiliation and of injustice through what looks like weakness, through suffering, through trusting of another. That's how Jesus rules. And then there's another disarming. So you look at Pilate. Do you notice kind of the progression? And it would be easier if you just go back and you read all of 18 and 19 or half of 18 and 19 to kind of see a progression. Did you notice it? Do you notice anything kind of changing with Pilate? Okay, maybe not. Read, read it again. He goes in from having zero interest. Like, they wake him up in the middle of the night, like, I don't know who this guy is. What are you doing? Take care of him yourself. Have no interest. To kind of being afraid of what or who Jesus might be. That's the end of chapter 18. And then, having flogged Jesus and mocked him, hoping that that would satisfy the accusers so he could release Jesus, because he doesn't want to deal with Jesus, he repeatedly says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. To then hearing that he has made himself out to be the son of God, at which point he's a little freaked out about that. So he pulls Jesus back in for a further conversation. So each step of the way, Pilate is having a more intense interaction with Jesus. He's encountering Jesus. He's being more exposed to Jesus. And he's able to watch the way Jesus handles himself and he treats others, how he speaks with authority at times. Like pointedly, he's talking to the man that can release him or kill him. And he's saying the kind of things that he's saying, pointed. He has this great authority, but then he goes silent when it would benefit him to speak. So when Jesus boldly responds to Pilate's fearful attempt to bully him by saying, um, are you, are you not going to speak to me? Pilate says, are you not going to speak to me? I have the authority to, to do this to you. Jesus says, settle down, dude. <laughs> settle down. You don't have authority that's not been given to you already. And it's almost like he, he's offering these words both as conviction and comfort when he says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So kind of reading between the lines, it sounds like this. Pilate Look, what you're doing is not right. It, it, it's sin. Sin in this case meaning opposition to me. It's not right. But I understand you're in a hard place. Okay, I'm reading between the lines so you can process this. It's like he's saying, I know you're in a hard place, and the one who delivered me over to you has the greater responsibility for their opposition. There's almost a, maybe a gentleness to his interaction with the man that's going to sentence him to death. How does Pilate come out of this conversation? Verse 12 says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. From then on, he tried to release him. He was trying to find a way out because of what he's encountering with Jesus. Now, he finally caves in to the pressure, right, as the story unfolds. But what is going on with Pilate as he interacts more and more with Jesus? It seems like he's being disarmed. Seems like he's even being drawn into this grace that Jesus has to offer. This is the effect Jesus has. He disarms if we get close enough to him. He exposes us. He exposes this thing called sin, this opposition, this hatred, rebellion toward God, this unlove that we have towards our neighbor and our, and our enemies. He strips the veil of our self-righteous facade. You get close enough to Jesus and you, he strips you. 
But he can also disarm by drawing you into himself and into his grace. He disarms that way. But it was not enough. He does do this, but it wasn't enough for the leaders. It wasn't enough for Pilate. They still sent him down the road. Nothing changed. The trajectory was the same. Um, Why was it not enough? Because we all need more. We need Jesus to finish the work that he began. We need him to finish the suffering. We need him to finish the trusting. We need him to finish the stripping and the disarming, out of which he would then rise to disarm death. (laughs) We need him to do that. Jesus' rule is manifest to us, and it is exerted for us. His rule is actually for us by overcoming our eneminess through love. That's how he does it. That's how he rules. And overcoming our greater enemy of death through his resurrection. He promises all who surrender to his rule to rest in him and his rule, who are what we call baptized in him. When you're, when you're, when you're washed in him, when you're brought into him, he will share, we will share in this future victory that he has obtained and are promised the power of his rule in our lives right now, even as we face our own anxious instabilities. He promises for that kind of rule to actually be working in our anxious instabilities. This is the ultimate proof and the guarantee that his rule is true because through his suffering, through his trusting, through his disarming, we see not only his way is good, his way is his, it's right, but it actually wins. It's not just a really cool, oh man, that's such a sad example, but it feels so good. And no, he actually wins. He actually becomes the victor over the enemy and death. When we, are, when we all are anxiously unstable, and when our anxious instabilities crumble around us and it exhausts us, Jesus stands alone to calm, to bring patient stability, to be a rock and a rule upon which and under which we can rest. He offers that. And as this grips us, it reorients and it frees us to respond by carrying his rule to the anxious instabilities around us. We get to go and be peacemakers to the places where we are living and working and playing, to the places that we touch. We get to now take that kind of stability into the instabilities. How? How are we now going to do that? Okay, this is for a much longer conversation. But we do it by suffering with him and for others. We get to go and experience the humiliation and not really even be humiliated. We get to go and actually suffer injustice on behalf of others and stand in the gap for those that are suffering injustice without having that attack our own identity. We get to trust him as the above all authority, knowing that he and his Father and the Spirit know what they are doing, even if we don't know what we're doing. They actually know what they're doing, and they are doing good. They're doing good. And then we get to go and disarm the hate and the anger 
and the deception and the manipulation and the self-justification and the opposition to him by having his counterintuitive rule patiently rule us. That's what we then get to do as we first find our rest in him. So, Father, we thank you that you are such a radically different king. You have given us your son. You, Lord Jesus, is such a radically different rule and ruler. Lord, maybe we are uncertain as to what this really all means. Or is this even true? Are you really this kind of a king? Please show us that you're this kind of king. And as you show us, Help us to see that this, you are the beautiful way, the truth and the life, and that we, we look around and maybe we're uncertain about you, but we're certainly not certain about the other rules of life. Where else can we go? Because you are the words of life. You're the good rule. You're the suffering servant who reigns as the king of all. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray this. And in Jesus' name we come to his table. He sets this aside as a reminder of his uh, rule. Yeah, that's fair. This is how he rules us. (laughs) He feeds us. He gives us his life. That's how he rules us. Yeah, and I know there's more aspects to his rule, right? And we'll talk about that as time goes on. But it's all infected by and influenced by this reality. So, Father, as we come to the table, we ask that you would take these simple elements of bread and and juice and you would use them to rule us as we even come into this into this time and into this table, would we come with open hands? Would we come as surrendered servants, knowing that we need you to rule us? Break down our barriers that keep us from you. Break down those barriers where we think that we can rule better than you can, or we look to other things to be better rulers and convince us that you're better. And may we come repentant, (laughs) open-handed, ready to receive what you have to offer. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Whenever we eat of the bread and we drink the cup, we're actually proclaiming the Lord's death and his rule in our lives to the world. Come forward as you are ready.